Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. That's where we left off back in November. <clears throat> Had several one-offs here over the last couple of months back into the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. And this morning we're going to be reading and then stepping through Verses 31 through 42. So John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. You have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We pray this morning that uh, you would help us, that you would give your spirit, and we may know the immeasurable greatness of your power uh, toward us. Uh, the same power that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, we would know it this morning. Uh, Please make us a people who are going from one person to another person out into the town and and just live to bring people to you. And I pray that by your great mercy you would bear much fruit, you would get a great harvest for yourself through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I took my seven-year-old <clears throat> on a date this week. Uh, she just finished reading the, the entire Psalter, so all 150 psalms. It's a proud papa moment there. And so I, I ran her up to cookout, where every seven-year-old dreams of going, to grab a milkshake of her own choosing. And as we pulled out of the lot, there was a woman who walked right in front of our vehicle, and uh, I would say she's fairly normal in size, um, but she, she was walking in front of us, and she walked away from us, and as she did that, my little date did what I imagine we've all done before, and that is squish her with her fingers, right? We've all done that, no? Okay. You, you, you see someone off in the distance, you kind of close your left eye, you, you lift up your fingers, you measure them just so. I'm measuring Corey White right now, he's this big, and then I squish 
<clears throat> and as she did this, uh, she was greeted by the realization of a little something called perspective. As the distance between us and that woman grew, you could tell, though smaller, she was still normal. But then you measure her at that distance by your, by your squishing fingers. And she was maybe three centimeters tall, you know. And that's what my, my girl said. She said, uh, she said Daddy, that, that woman is this tall. When, of course, she was many times bigger than that. Interesting thing, perspective. Well, today I want to ask us, speaking of perspective, how big is the glory of God in the conversion of souls to us? Now, right, as a Christian, we, we, we know that it's bigger than anything else in all the universe, really. The question for us is, is it right in front of us? Are we seeing it as it really is? Or is it a little bit off to the side? Is it at a distance? Or are we sort of squishing it so as to make it itty-bitty, much smaller than it actually is? I might ask, are we spiritually adult or more or less childish in our perspective? Dear ones, this morning, just ask us, we throw the language around all the time, but is it true? Do you love Jesus? And do you love souls? As your life will tell, to what degree do we prioritize redemptive matchmaking? Friends, the whole world is not worth the loss of one soul. We must begin to feel again the stakes at play in the Great Commission. God Himself came into the world to save sinners. So, we ought to be able to see that and go, that is the most essential work What an epic mercy that we, having been saved, should also then be enlisted by Him to have what really is an integral and indispensable role in the eternal salvation of other people. Is it our meat and drink? Is it our life's work? And if it's not today, there's no better time than right now to have our lives and our priorities reset by the clarity of Christ's priority. Here, in our text, is the preeminent pursuit of the heart of Jesus. What really matters above everything else. What should be the dominant theme of our lives. And that is missions. So, let's get going and first consider the food that's work. The food that's work, picking up in verse 31. <clears throat> and as it's been a little bit since we've been in John, let's just recall our current situation. How uh, after evangelizing the, the great Pharisee Nicodemus, Jesus has just evangelized this Samaritan woman without a name, Two people who could not be uh, any more different, any more opposite in their backstory or in their belief system, but who are both sinners in need of this one and only Savior. And as this one and only Savior engages both of them, we learn two very important things. The first, as I just said, that whoever they are, there are none in the world who have no need of Christ. And next, and most lovely, Christ is not opposed to giving himself most freely to all. And in the process then, to bind, as it were, the whole world together by the grace of faith in him, as the text will bear out for us. But just see the occasion here. See the occasion here. Christ has revealed her to be the sinner 
He has also then revealed himself to be her Savior. And, and by the look of it, she has been, what we might say, born again. Her, her soul has been convicted about the truth. That, that living water, remember, that Jesus promised her has apparently entered in. And as he said it would, it has now begun to immediately well up and spill over. Recall, she, she now darts off to Sychar, to her town, to share the discovery that she has made. And that as she does this, there is a notable intersection. As she goes out to bring back people. Jesus' disciples return, not with people, but with food. Okay? And that's where our passage now picks up. The woman has met with a lot of fruit. Uh, she was effectively bringing people to Jesus. My, how, how one, one, persuaded of the truth can be instantly useful in the evangelization of many others. Okay. Uh, dear ones, I think we often tell ourselves that we need... Uh, some special training for this. Uh, we need some, some ripening on the vine. Got to have some Christian experience before we try to engage others for Jesus. We need to have all the answers just in case something ever comes up. But this woman, this woman does not yet have a codified affirmation of faith, however vital it will be. She, she has not been trained on how to lead people to Jesus besides how Jesus led her to himself. That's it. Uh, she, she does not have a, a, a theological library to work with. There's, there's not even really a church yet that she's a part of. She's, she's probably the first believer in her town. She's, she's just then been converted. But where someone has been truly converted, that is equipment enough. She knows that she is a sinner. That this man, Jesus, has saved. And that is enough to, to go out and bring others in to Jesus. Perhaps we've, we've lost it along the way, and if so, how badly we need to recover it. But this is, this is her going out and bringing others in is the inclination of the new heart. It is the inclination of the soul that really has tasted the grace of God. It is the inclination for the person uh, who, uh, with whom eternal salvation is, is really alive and well and, and fresh. It's to go out and, and bring others in. The question really for such a person should never be, can I, but how can I not do this? Right? Is the Apostle Paul saying in 1 Corinthians, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Oh my. Beloved, do you and I own that? Or better, does it own us? The, the basic truths of the gospel are sufficient in themselves to be acted upon, right? to, to take us to town and to the ends of the earth for the sake of Christ and for the sake of everyone who would ever believe. Indeed, if we do not act upon it just so, we need to ask ourselves, has the truth of the gospel actually got us? Is it palpably true and sovereign in our Hearts. This woman here is a model disciple from the jump. And is she then our, our model disciple? Well, it's in contrast to her that Jesus' disciples show up. She again has brought many souls to Jesus. Verse 30. And then it immediately says, verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples had brought that food. That they went to get, and now they're, they're urging Jesus to eat. So get the picture. Jesus is ministering to lost souls. What a scene. 
And while he is engaged in this, his disciples are kind of prodding him, in effect, to stop, take a break, be refreshed, have some food. Okay. Now, to give them the benefit of the doubt, what do we know? We know from earlier in John 4 that Jesus is actually exhausted, and he is thirsty, and he is hungry. And all of that was before he began to engage and then evangelize this Samaritan woman. Remember? And so I think we can be charitable and say they are showing here a real care for their Lord. Went to town, get some food, come back. Please take some bread. And yet it seems that their real care is in this case a bit out of order. We learn from Jesus there is a more important matter afoot than food. Now I think it is legitimate to ask ourselves what could be more important than food? It's a shocking truth, I know, but you have to eat to live. Food is more than important, food is actually a necessity, but when Eating it involves ending the evangelization of a captive audience. It means ending laboring for the salvation of souls. Mealtime takes a back seat for the Savior of the world. See here the clear priority of God incarnate. Of God as we see Him in Christ. I don't know about you, but I'll confess, I schedule my days around food. I, I wake up hungry, and not for just like one of those weird dietary bars or something like that. Like, I want eggs and bacon and toast and coffee and all the things. It takes me like an hour to make my breakfast. Okay, so my, I schedule my days around all of that. I come home from, from being here to go have lunch, okay? And then, and then eventually, like, I get hungry again, and it is a big production for me, dinner. So those are my days. I schedule my days around that. Jesus scheduled his days around souls. Now, praise God, those two can and do often align. But if food should put off souls, it's food, not souls, that's to be put off. And so the lesson for his disciples amid all this evangelism is the priority of evangelism for his disciples. You see it? They're urging him to eat up. And what does he say to them? He says... I have food to eat that you do not know about. And per usual, they, like most others, show their initial spiritual density as to what should be the preeminent focus of their lives. Right? What the most important thing really is. Right? They, they sit here, they hear what he has to say, and they go, really? That's tremendously odd. Did someone beat us to the punch? Has someone supplied him already with food? How in the conversion of souls we are so much our own problem. We'll see by and by. But here suffice it to say that their physical wants, their physical comforts took precedent, took priority over the spiritual priority. And I'm sure that has a wide range of application for us. But it's to correct this that Jesus says, verse 34, okay guys, let's, let's step back for a second. I'll explain it. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Dear ones, the saving of souls 
is the food of Christ. Just think on that. How everything He is and everything He does has that at the center. This is His life. It's His sustenance. It's His meat and His drink. And I know that I have some foodies in here this morning, so all apologies to you. But, Jesus says there is no food better than this. This is the feast by which and for which I live. And I want to tell you, it's no different for Him this very hour. This Jesus is not just some guy back off a couple thousand years ago who died and was buried and that was it and now he's just dust. This Jesus is the same right now and forever just as he was then in his insatiable appetite for the conversion of souls. And we need to get that and arrest that in our minds because when we go through seasons of ministry, that are so lean in this regard. Despite our toil and tears, can we not begin to wonder if He cares at all? Or even begin to doubt and to, to criticize Him as though we desired souls more than the Savior of the world. We need to be pacified and helped here. That's not close to being true. We are like the disciples in this passage. That's who we always are. And what we see of Jesus here, again, is the very same even this hour. This is how Charles Spurgeon challenges us. He says, quote, We have not done all that lies within our power. I fear if we were weighed in the balance, it would be found we don't possess all of that agonizing pity we suppose ourselves to possess. Our compassion comes in spasms, in fits, not as a matter of fixed principle. Jesus. Our zeal, it, it comes and it, it goes, wax and wane. And yet, despite that, we will cry out to him, Arm of the Lord, awake! But he replies to us, No, awake, awake, O Zion. The slumber, he says, is with us and not with Christ. If we would do anything and everything in our power to secure the salvation of souls, we may depend upon it. The Lord Himself is not slack in grace. Close quote. Indeed, beloved, we know, don't we, that in the end, His words here imply nothing less than that He will do His all for the redemption of His people. Sent for that, to achieve that, Jesus will not stop until it is finished on the cross. And even then and now, saving souls is his life. Uh, in sports, Super Bowl party this afternoon. Again, invitation to come. In sports, they, they talk of the great ones, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, how laser-focused they are on the big stage, and how, how differential that is between winning and losing. I just want to tell you this morning that on the biggest stage, that is the stage of eternal redemption. Jesus is the greatest to ever do it. 
You might even say he's the goat. The greatest of all time. Jesus literally never, think, literally never lost focus. Unbelievable. And in that way, he won salvation. And so there's justified hope for us and for the lost that they can and will be found. All right, so much for the food that's work. What about the work that's harvesting souls? Did we just cover that? Okay, sort of. But I want you to hear this. Our Lord's goal goes beyond expressing His own priority to us. It's that His own priority would own us also. And then find consistent, maybe even constant expression in our lives. And so, picking up in verse 35, the object lesson continues here. He pulls out what I guess is a common phrase of the day. He says to them, do you not say there are yet, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Now, how he words that emphasizes some lapse of time. Okay? It's as if the seed has been sown and maybe that seed has also been watered and all that remains is time and the gracious providence of God to bring about the harvest. And so we do all that stuff and then we just sit there and sort of twiddle our thumbs while we wait on the crop to crop up. But then Jesus gives this a twist. The twist he gives to it is, is all the point. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are what? White for harvest. Okay. Why then, church, might we have a lack of missional urgency? Why does it come and go? Why do we have it in spasms and fits? Why might we procrastinate in bringing others to Jesus? Might it be that we have lost sight of the harvest's imminency? That it is now and not just later. Our Savior bids us here three different ways, same kind of message. Look, lift up your eyes, see. See what? The time to harvest is now. Stop finding other things to consume your time, he seems to say. Stop making excuses. Stop thinking to yourselves, I have all the time in the world to get to this. No, we don't. And neither do the lost. And even if we did, it doesn't matter because Jesus has said, it's go time. Why play with time? Why presume upon time when the Lord of time has said, get to it? The fields are white for harvest. Is that how we view the field nearest us today? I wonder. Uh, certainly the darkness of the hour, and it is very dark, can discourage us. Right? The, uh, the evil of the day can, can tempt us to question, like, what hope do we have? The sin that we see in ourselves and the sin that we see in others can no doubt dampen our zeal. But let's not be so faithless as if Jesus didn't use the darkest hour in our history, Christ crucified, to be the very seed sown for the great harvest. Because he was in control of it all along. I mean, I, I know. I have conversations with many of you about this. 
I know that folks are super broken right now. Super destitute. Depressed. Isolated. Divided. Angry. Perplexed. Enslaved. To the grossest expressions of Satan's plots and ploys. But dear ones, what then? What then? What present opportunity we have to introduce souls to the light of the world. To this Savior of the world. He's not surprised by any of that. The time is now. And as if we need any more motive to it, Jesus continues. What does He say there? He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for what? Eternal life. Talk about the use of time for eternity. As one put it, quote, anyone who wins souls to Christ is at work on something with lasting consequences. This is no ordinary harvest that over time gets consumed. It endures to forever. This work is for all eternity, he says. Can we even begin to to fathom that? And as we try, how should we let it rearrange or supremely motivate our lives? I mean, you know as well as I know, the lengths, the lengths to which people will go for a prize that will not endure. You've seen folks put off good things like sleep, looking at you college students, putting off sleep, putting off enjoyment, putting off exercise, putting off friends, putting off marriage, putting off children. And perhaps you've seen the same folks take on potentially, if not absolutely, Really poor and unhealthy habits also. And for what? For what? To ace an exam? To gain highest honors? To get a job? To earn that promotion? To receive that payday? No, to make an impact. Great, great. Make an impact. But how much of that impact will survive the grave? Beloved, are we impacting people who are immortal? What are we doing about that? People who will exist forever, either in heaven or in hell. To what lengths are we going to be, as Jude calls us to be, snatching people out of the fire? Is that how you view unbelievers around you? As those who are in the fire? Do we yet have such a sense of this that we can say, as the Apostle Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ if only, if only souls may be saved. How much do the realities of heaven and hell hang over us? How much is the worth of one soul? Again, the very coming of Christ into the world to save sinners. That's the thing He did. Ought to leave no doubt about its importance. He believed in those things. Well, again, already Jesus says, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. And you see, he attaches a present result to it also. And I love him so much for it. (laughs) He says, so that sower and reaper, reaper and sower, may rejoice together. 
Why do I love him for this? But that while the hope is to reap, oh, it is. Jesus refuses to forget the one who sows. Jesus refuses to forget the one who may labor long in the field to see very little fruit from it. That is a thing. He wants us to know that very rarely, this whole enterprise, very rarely is it a solo act. That typically bringing people to Jesus will be collaborative. It will be a joint effort. And just there, we are to be, we must be instructed. We live in a day, it's not novel, where so much emphasis and all the glory seems to be placed upon the reaper. The one who sees that soul cross the line and be saved. And I'd argue missions is the poorer for it. To say little of the damage done to faithful sowers. Yes, the time to reap is upon us. Christ has inaugurated the age of salvation. May God enable us as a church to gather up a great, great harvest for His glory. (laughs) May He grant us more and more of this blessing to reap. But, let's not forget, as Christ does not forget, that while by sowing we hope to reap, there is no reaping without sowing. And so, I want to say to some of you, all of you, who have sown and sown and sown some more, and seen what seems like very little fruit, so that you're very discouraged, and maybe even doubtful of continuing in the work as your faithfulness to God and to the gospel and to Christ and to the scriptures cannot seem to keep pace with human pragmatism, I want to say to you, Jesus sees you. He says that sowing in tears is necessary for a great harvest. Indeed, he tells any who happen to reap to keep you, the sower, in mind. And that insofar as we are granted to reap, we're to admit it as nothing but the mercy of God to us, that we should ever, any one of us, should ever be the conclusive means of such a miracle as the new birth is. He is the Lord of the harvest. Not me. He is the Lord of the harvest. A person, remember what John the Baptist said in chapter 3? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from above. From heaven. And even here, is it not Jesus who seems to have determined the disciples' lot in the great harvest? What does he say? He says, one sows, verse 37, another reaps. I sent you to what? To reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have but entered into their labor. So, success, dear ones, in ministry is not merely in the reaping. Otherwise, Jesus, by the way, the greatest evangelist that ever was, was quite often a failure. No. Divine success begins in the unity of these operations. It is in the urgent, driven, and collaborative sowing. It's in the planting and the watering that then looks to God for the conversion of souls. So that when the miracle occurs, when one does actually reap a soul for eternal life, what does Jesus say? He says, sower and reaper, rejoice together. Because the goal is a shared one. 
And that goal is harvest. Not unto ourselves for our own glory, but of immortal beings to the glory of God. What a blessed labor this is. And how happy then we ought to be just to be a part of it, whatever part that might be. The real matter is this. Are we laboring at all? Are we looking for work? And I've been so encouraged by all of you of late. I'll give you a couple of instances here. One texts me, I believe it was earlier this week, and he asked me, hey, will you pray for me to show Christ to an unbeliever at work? Another one tells me they're starting a, a Bible study for unbelievers on campus. Some others have given time to wreck sports with me to be the aroma of Christ to the kids that we're coaching and, and to their families. And it's been noticeable to those people that I have testimonies in my inbox. Still another is making time to step a soul through the gospel to Jesus on her own dime. Two others of us are uh, overseas right now, and they are tilling, and they are planting, and they are watering, and we pray they are also in the process of reaping. Others share Christ with kids and internationals every Sunday morning in our back building. Others, by their Diligent mercy are laying groundwork for the gospel with refugees in our area. I mean, we could keep on doing this, okay? It's so very encouraging. So very encouraging. But how, how might still others of us begin then to, to labor in this field that is white for harvest? That's the question. Jesus is telling us it's time to be about that above everything else, in everything else. The food that's work, a work that is harvesting for souls, a harvesting, last, that is global. Picking up in verse 39. John brings us back to the Samaritan woman. He tells us that on account of her testimony, not only had many come to Christ, but that they had also believed in Jesus. And in this way, we hear it again, as one put it, how, quote, the most unlikely soul may prove the most effective witness. Were, were you counted out by others? Were you a great sinner? Were you initially, and maybe repetitively obstinate to Jesus, to the gospel, what a story then you have to tell of Christ who saved you and renumbered you with the redeemed. Go out, fear not, and tell it all over the place. Who but God knows what He might bring about through your testimony. Here you see it's a great crop of Samaritans and what is most notable, I think, is how their experience of Jesus did not disappoint. It's wonderful. The reason that's so incredible is that this woman has portrayed him to be the, the Messiah that they expected, the, the great prophet who was akin to Moses, if you remember that from a couple months ago. And so their expectation here is through the roof. Who can this guy be? And Jesus, for his part, never, ever, ever falls short of the truth in full. Never disappoints. They come to him and they find one in Christ that they long to have abide with them. Will you please stay for us and uh, stay with us? And, and Jesus, true to his words, he stays for, for two whole days. And we're told, verse 41, that in the span of that time, what? Still, many more believed because 
of his word, which, as we eventually come to John chapter 8, helps us to understand beforehand that this was no false start, but a true beginning. These are real converts who love and take Jesus at his word. Go read John 8 later this afternoon. But friend, listen, we don't have the transcripts of his conversation with these Samaritans. But, is there any doubt about what he said to them? Is there any doubt about his message? They tell the woman, in essence, our faith has been all the further strengthened by the testimony of his mouth, what we've personally tasted of him. And we now know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Again, what a miracle of grace. Here in this Samaritan town abides a non-Samaritan, a Jewish man that they now call the Savior of the whole world and in that it comes clear that he must have at least convinced them of their sin and their guilt and their helplessness before God. Why else need this Savior? And then also that he was the Savior they needed. And that he was quite willing to be so. So that they saw no reason left to deprive themselves of the grace that he offered to them. And so, friend, as I said earlier, there are none in the world who have no need of him. And he is not opposed to giving himself most freely to all and in the process to bind, as it were, the whole world together by the grace of faith in him. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. That covers all of us. He's the Savior of sinners. And to that point here, as he's later going to say in this gospel, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies and is buried, it bears much fruit. There is no hope or harvest at all, but by the death, the risen Jesus died to make it so. He lived perfectly. He died sacrificially. He rose triumphantly so that by faith in Him alone, we, hell-deserving sinners as we are, may be saved and reconciled to God. You, friend, may, may be forgiven of all your sins and granted eternal life. And so don't deprive yourself this morning of the grace this Jesus offers to you. We want to call you to come to Christ. Let nothing hinder you at all, least of all your sins. Well, beloved, what a gift we have. What a gift we have to say to all peoples what Jesus himself is willing and delighted to confirm and prosper. Let us find no hindrance in the work. Let's have at it. And let's have at it not at a distance, not squished down to centimeters big, but front and center in our lives. If I may, let's go to town. Right? Let's go to town today as this woman did and as his disciples learned to do. Again, a, a grain of wheat falling into the earth. That imagery is not just for our Lord or of our Lord, but it is the pattern that he establishes and invites us also to follow as we follow him. Would we bear much fruit as a church? then there must be sacrifice which the glory of Christ dawning in a single soul, even if it's one for the rest of the history of the world, is well worth making. Some of us need to hear that and just walk across the street today. 
Are not the nations among us, especially here in a college town like Clemson? Whether they are or aren't, I know sinners are amongst us. I know unbelievers are amongst us. And some of us need to hear all of this and we need to maybe host more, have more people in our homes. Maybe we need to give more to gospel ministry. Maybe we all need to pray more for the power of the Spirit of Christ to descend upon the ministry of the Word. Some of us need to hear all of that and we need to break more barriers, whatever they may be. Generational, social, economic, racial. Break them. And go share the gospel. Some of us need to hear that. And we need to just go further for souls in this sense. You need to heed the call to go to the nations. This Savior of the world has a people from all over the world to save. But whatever it is, let's have missions as the great theme of our lives. Let's live so as to say, as the great song goes, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Indeed, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, still then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Let's pray together. Lord, do it. Do it in our hearts. If there are any unbelieving this morning coming through the door, Let them be your people anew going out. We ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.